I tried last week to get through Acts chapter 2, uh, and I couldn't get through the all of it, so we're going to wrap up Acts chapter 2 today, verses 42 through 47. And so if you have a Bible and brought one with you or on, or on your smart device, if you can find Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47, I'm going to read that in just a minute. It's on the screens. It's also on our app. You want to follow along there. The, the setup of this is that the, the disciples, the apostles, had had this experience with Jesus after his resurrection. Uh, he's met with them. He met with 500 people in total over the course of 40 days. They've waited 10 more days as he instructed them. The Holy Spirit has come upon them, uh, and they're starting this process of living out their experience, uh, this incredible experience that they've had with God, uh, with Jesus, through the person of Jesus, uh, and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So they're, they're just, they're, they're living together, they're trying to figure this out, like what does this mean, what's the ramifications of it, how do we live this out? And so I just want to read part of the expression of that in verses 42 through 47, you follow along. I know they'll fall along on the screens. The Bible says this, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. Um, the, in, in the fleshing out of this experience that they had with God, uh, they had just come in contact personally with this incredible experience of God's love for them. Uh, they had their own personal experience with Jesus, uh, and now they're living it out in real time with each other. And what I see in these few verses in 42 through 47, what I see is an expression of the five purposes of God's church. I I just want to set this on the table for you. God has established what his purpose is for his church. It's his church. It's about him. He established it. He initiated it. He propels it. He grows it. He does it. So he has the right and the authority to establish his purposes for his church, which he has done. We see in in these verses an expression, how they were expressing uh, the living out of those purposes. Jesus said, and Jesus gives us the purposes of God's church and the purposes of the disciple. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. That's the purpose of worship. Showing love to God is worship. And then Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. Anytime we show love to to our neighbor, that's an act of ministry. So worship and ministry. Jesus then, in his instructions, in his great commission, he said, go therefore into all the world and make disciples. That's the purpose of evangelism. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's bringing them into the fellowship, and we'll talk about that in a minute, and teaching them to obey all things I've commanded you. That's discipleship. And so those are God's purposes for God's church. And and what I see in Acts 2, 42 through 47, is they just kind of, they naturally kind of live this out. And we're going to get to look at their expression of this in their context in the first church in the first century. Acts 2, 42 through 47. Now, we're going to see the church's priorities. What we see in Acts 2, 42 through 47 is, is, if I can phrase it this way, is really descriptive more than prescriptive because there's nowhere in the Bible that says this is how your church has to be established and, 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 uh, and functioned and Though we see examples, we gain example from their example, priorities of the church. We gain ex- from their example kind of things that should happen, though it might look a little differently in our context. They lived in this common state for a time, 
It's the only place in the New Testament where the church lived in this common state almost communally with each other. It's the only place it's ever done in Scripture in the New Testament, and it's never commanded that that's what the church must do, but this was their experience of it. Part of the reason is they had thousands of people coming to Jerusalem for the festival. They come in contact with God through the Holy Spirit, and they don't want to go back home. And so you got all these people, thousands, that are just looking to stay. We just want to stay in Jerusalem for a little while. And so the church had to figure out a way to live in in, in common with each other, supply needs for each other, because you got a bunch of people from out of town. Uh, and they didn't have, uh, you know, VRBO there or Airbnbs. And so they just had to, had to figure this out. And so we're going to see their expression of them figuring out in this Christian community. But what we're really going to see is the fleshing out of the five purposes of God. It's amazing how they put this together. Chapter 2 forces us to ask the question, and we'll, we'll see it in just a minute. But it's going to force us to ask this question. If you're a follower of Jesus, you got to ask yourself this question. Does my devotion to the kingdom match the first church's devotion to the kingdom? Okay, this, they're, they're going to be our model and our standard for now. And, and if you're a disciple of Jesus, it, studying this passage of Scripture will force us to ask the question, does my devotion to God and his kingdom match their devotion to God and his kingdom? So you ready to ask yourself that question? When one has an awe-inspired experience with God, it always shows up in their lifestyle. It makes that life look different. Different than it used to look and different than the culture around it. That life that has a, a personal awe-inspiring encounter with God, priorities are rearranged, habits change, and a church that has disciples who have an awe-inspiring encounter with God is unstoppable. The Church of Acts. Let me just say this right up front. When, when, if you consider yourself a disciple of Jesus and your finances and your habits and your priorities and your pursuits look the same as the culture, you must question if you've had an inspired awe experience with God. Because when you've had, it changes everything. And the disciples' greatest desire is to have this awe-inspired experience with the living God. But understand, if that's happened, you're not the same. You can't be the same. Does our devotion to God and His kingdom match the first church's devotion to God and His kingdom? Let's see. Let's look at their experience of God, their understanding of his love for them, the transformation of their lives. This is what the Bible says in verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. They devoted themselves. When the Bible uses that word, devoted, it's a Greek word that means they adhered to, they were attentive to, they had a steadfast and single-minded loyalty to a course of action or agenda. The disciples devoted themselves. The disciples adhered to. The disciples paid attention to. They had a steadfast and single-minded loyalty to the apostles' teaching. When the Bible uses that word, the apostles' teaching, that, that's the Greek word didache. It means the, the, their, their doctrine. What that is is what is fleshed out for us in the New Testament. They devoted themselves. 
to the study, the understanding of the apostles' teaching to the doctrine that we have in the New Testament. The interesting thing to me is, is the Bible says that the, the disciples devoted, what's the next word? Themselves. The disciple devoted himself, herself. There wasn't, they didn't need this external motivation. They didn't need someone to rally the troops. They didn't need smoke and mirrors. They didn't need a program. They didn't need a fountain on a coffee shop. They, they, they was like they devoted themselves. Do you understand what I'm saying? There was an internal motivation that they chose. This incredible devotion right up front initially to the apostles' teaching. They didn't need a rah-rah. They didn't need someone giving them a charge. They didn't need someone getting them all pumped up about it. They devoted themselves because that's what a disciple does when a disciple has had an intimate, powerful expression and experience with God. There's this motivation that happens within. And the motivation for them to devote themselves to God and his kingdom came because they experienced the devotion of God towards them. See, what they understood is what would later be written in Romans 5.8. God showed his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When you understand God's devotion to you, it always produces devotion to him. And it makes the church unstoppable. Let me say it like this. Before you or I had any inclination to be devoted to God, God was already devoted to us. Before you ever had a thought of devoting yourself to God, God already devoted himself to you. And he showed it and proved it through the life of his son. And when they understood that. They were there with Christ at the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension. They got it like God was so devoted to them through the person of Christ that their natural response was then to devote themselves to God. And that's always the result when a disciple understands God's extreme devotion to them. The natural outgrowth of that is to be devoted back to him. So that's why I asked. In assessing our devotion to Christ and his kingdom, how does it match up with what we see in the first church? Have you had that intimate, experience, awe-inspired interaction with God. What were they devoted to? Do you remember? They devoted themselves to what? Do you remember? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. It's the first thing that's listed. The, the apostles' teaching is what we understand is now fleshed out for us in the New Testament. And it's the interpretation of the Old Testament through the lens of Christ, through the lens of God's grace, through the lens of God's kingdom. They, they were a teaching church, and they taught the doctrine of the kingdom of God and the deity of Christ. That Greek word didike, it's the, it's, the, it's the doctrine, it's the truth. So they were a teaching church, but also by implication, they were a learning church. They were fully disciples that wanted to know. Like, well, I want more of this. Teach me more of this. It wasn't simple stuff, but it was simply taught. And the church was eager to grow in it. And they brought themselves to the table devoted to this teaching. It is not insignificant that teaching is the first thing listed here. Why? Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. This is the foundation and bedrock of everything the church does. There's a lot of things the church could do. Teaching is the priority of it. It ought to be anyway. 
I've been around this church gig a long time, and I've heard from a lot of pastors and a lot of church folk, and I've heard them say, well, you know what? We're just a church that loves Jesus. Well, great. Y'all love Jesus. But it's through the teaching of the word that we learn what the Bible says about how to express love to Jesus. You know what? We're just a church that loves people. Well, great. But it's through the teaching of the doctrine of Scripture that we learn how properly to love people who are living contrary to the kingdom. Especially of late, after well, we're just a church that's focused on on, on justice and and you know and, and social justice stuff. Well, yeah, I mean that's part of it too. But it's through the teaching of the Word of God and the doctrine of Scripture that we learn what justice truly is, and we can see behind the social agendas. It's the teaching of the Word of God, and they devoted themselves to it. Now, back in their day, they didn't have. They didn't have their own, their own little copy of Scripture. They didn't have their own little copy of the Old Testament. You know what? Today we do. We got Bibles upon Bibles upon Bibles. And if you're not, you know, kind of of the original cloth like me with the paper one, you, you definitely got one on your smart device. And so they had to devote themselves in the context of the apostles' teaching as the apostles taught it. Guess what? We get the privilege of not only that, but of studying it ourselves. It's the teaching of the truth of Scripture and the doctrine that is foundational and the priority of the church. I like to say, we need to understand that like, like the, the doctrine, like, scriptural truth is unchanging. It doesn't twist, it doesn't morph, it is unchanging. I like to say it like this, if it's true, it isn't new, and if it's new, it isn't true. And they were devoted to the teaching of the apostles, that what we have in our hands as the scriptures. A steadfast, single-minded loyalty to it. You understand? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the what? Do you remember what the next one was? They devoted themselves to the fellowship, the teaching of the apostles and the fellowship. So they were a teaching church and a learning church, and they were a fellowshipping church. Now, here's what we have to understand. This is really important. Fellowship is a thing the church is. It's not something the church does. Did any of you grow up old school in the old churches that had a fellowship hall? Any of the old school ones? We grew up in church that had a fellowship hall. What was a fellowship hall? It was a place where you get, met together and you ate homemade cafeteria food. You know what I'm saying? It was just, fellowship isn't just something the church, fellowship is something the church is. They devoted themselves to the fellowship. I'm going to tell you the difference between who you are now and who you'll be in five years. Do you want to know? The difference between who you are now and who you will be in five years comes from two things. The things you read or put in your head or scroll and the people you most closely associate with. That's going to be your difference. And so understand, they devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles' like scripture and to the fellowship with each other. If the modern-day disciple spends more time putting in their head what they're scrolling on their device than what they're taking from the Word, it's going to have a very limiting and depreciative impact on their faith and maturity. Do you understand that? And likewise, if those closest to us are people who are not kingdom-minded and devoted to the kingdom of God, they're going to have a large shaping influence over our lives. This is why disciples, fellowshipping with disciples, is so paramount and important. 
This word fellowship, it comes from a Greek word that's really difficult to translate into English, and it's the Greek word called koinonia. Say koinonia. Yeah. I'm not going to take the time to try to explain the totality of what this word means, but let me just give you a snapshot. It means commonness. It means community. And it means a deepening of friendship and developing common goals and priorities. So please understand, you disciple of Jesus, if that's what we claim ourselves to be, that when those closest to us are those where we don't hold the kingdom in common, who are not developing common goals and priorities of the kingdom of God, if those closest to us are not cut from that cloth, it's going to have a detrimental influence on our maturity and following of Christ. Does this make sense? Of course it does. Now, I'm not saying don't have people in your life who are far from God. We talk about our huddle all the time here. Those 8 to 15 people in our lives that we have influence with and who influence us. Some of those 8 to 15 in our huddle need to be, must be, disciples of Christ who have an unwavering, steadfast, single-minded devotion to God and His kingdom. But other people in our huddle will be people who are far from God, and we need those in our huddle too. Why? Because God is drawing them to Himself through whom? Through us. But those closest to us, those that I will bury a body for and not ask questions, are those who are kingdom people. Do you understand? And so for the disciple who spends more time scrolling than study, whose closest are those outside the kingdom, how do you think their devotion to God and his kingdom is going to match up with the first churches? Not well. A church organ, a church focus, like just from this, these first two, devotion to the, the, the word of God and the teaching and understanding the word of God and fellowship, that church is unstoppable. And it doesn't, I, I guess I'm not terribly surprised at how stoppable the church has become over the last few years when an edict from the governor would stop it. That is so antithetical to Christ and what he said. Jesus said the gates of hell won't prevail against my church. And all it took for most churches to be stopped was the governor saying we can't. See, a church like Acts 2, 42, is unstoppable. I don't care what anybody, it's unstoppable. Here's a great thing about gates. Gates don't move, right? They're there. Keep people in, keep people out. When Jesus said that gates won't prevail, it's not like the gates of hell are moving against the church. The idea is the church is moving against the gates of hell. And a church that's doing what Acts 2, 42 the first says, says that those gates can't even prevail against the church. And the reason why so many churches folded like a cheap lawn chair Let me just say this. Choose your friends wisely because they're going to shape your life. Do you know what the number one influence on young men is? They're guy friends. You, young men, your guy friends will convince you to do stupid stuff. And, 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 and most young men are stupid enough to do stupid stuff with their stupid guy friends. I know. You know the number one influence on young women? They're guy friends. <laughs> you young women, pay attention. Your stupid guy friends will cause you to do stupid stuff. So here's my little soapbox. Parents, be a part of choosing who your friend, kids' friends are. The younger they are, the more you should be a part of this. They don't have the authority to choose all their friends themselves. They should never be given that authority. That's not their job. That's your job as a parent. The younger your kids are, the more authority you exert to choose who their friends are. 
you make sure that you and your family and your children are associating with those of the same kingdom mindset. Now, you be kind to everybody. You teach your children, be kind to everybody, but only be friends with a few. And let me just put this little asterisk here. Evangelistic dating is a fallacy and a foolishness. I need to say this with all the grace I can muster because God still redeems foolish decisions. But when a disciple attaches their heart in a dating relationship to someone who is not a disciple, it will not end well. Now, by God's grace, he's redeemed foolish decisions, certainly. But there's nowhere in the Bible that would indicate it's okay for a disciple to date romantically a non-disciple. You want proof? Fine, I'll give it to you. Don't be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Young ladies, if you call yourself a disciple of Jesus and you choose to romantically date a non-disciple, you will be corrupted. This fellowship is a big deal. A Christ follower cannot survive and thrive without Christian fellowship. There's nothing about the disciples in the first church in verses 42 through 47 that was done in isolation from other people. A Christian's life is done in fellowship. Understand, here's how I would like to say it. Our witness enhances our witness. Did you catch that? Our witness enhances our witness. Everything about the church pushes against isolationism. Everything about the church pushes against isolationism. And this is one reason we will not live stream our services anymore. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, and what? You remember? The breaking of bread and the prayers. Okay, so wh- what this is, is is worship. They devoted themselves to expressions of worship. The breaking of bread, that's both in community, in meals together, and in communion, what we do every Sunday. And to the prayers. The prayers being those systematic Jewish prayers that they had grown up with and the prayers in private. Now, personally, I would rather have a pastor and disciples in church who spend every day in their prayer closet than those who organize a once a week prayer meeting. They devoted themselves to it. It happened in community, but it was daily practice in private. The breaking of bread, both in fellowship and meals and in communion. Now, here's how meals worked back then. Devout Jews would sit down together, and at the beginning of the meal, bread was always a part of it, and they would each take off a piece of bread, and they would give thanks for God, for his provision, for his grace, and acknowledge him as the giver of their sustenance. Jesus practiced this, and Jesus took it to a whole new level when he took the bread and said, now, this isn't just a symbol of God's provision and your sustenance. Now, this is a symbol of my body. So it is extraordinarily important, critical, and crucial that the disciple of Christ, before stuffing food in our mouths, takes a moment in prayer to give thanks to God for his provision and his sustenance and his son. In my family, we grew up as a child with my dad as the spiritual leader of our house and the priest of our household leading us in prayer every time we ate, whether it was in private or in public, out loud prayer, giving thanks to God. And I'm so thankful my dad was leader enough and man enough to do that because it set the standard in me. And if we cannot hold off stuffing food in our pie hole long enough to give God thanks for his provision and his son, we got a problem. 
whether it's in private at home or in public out in the world. They devoted themselves to it. Someone said this, that if we're so preoccupied with religious devotion that we neglect people, our religion does society a little good. But also, if we're so preoccupied with the social life that we ignore the kingdom of God, there's been no significant experience of God. And so these two things, the breaking of bread and prayers, communal meal and communion, corporate prayers and private, the public and the private go together in fellowship and in worship. What was the result of all this? They were a teaching church, they were fellowshiping church, they were worshiping church. The prayers in private and public eating together were part of worship. And awe came upon every soul. That's the results of this. Awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. The, the result of all this is they were inspired church. With that word awe, it means to have your mind stunned by the supernatural sense of God's presence. It's actually a Greek word called phobos, which means fear. A fear came over them. And I know that's not real popular in today's like church culture. No, I'm not afraid of God. He's my homeboy. That was a thing back in the 90s and 2000. It was so stupid. The Bible says that, 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 that the fear of God is the beginning of, of wisdom and knowledge. There ought to be a healthy fear of God. He ought not be so uncomfortable we're not afraid. Not like afraid like a boogeyman, like he's going to scare us and hurt us. But a fear and reverence. Here's what I mean. So far, most of us have electricity running in our homes, right? Maybe not some people in Riverstone because electricity, they're having a hard time out there. I don't know. Or maybe in Chowchilla, they're still living in the boondocks. But like most of us understand what it is to live in a house with electricity, right? Okay. You go to a light switch, you turn it on. Are you afraid of that light switch? No. You go plug in something in an outlet. You're afraid of that outlet? No. Now, take the cover off that outlet and stick your tongue on there. Now you're afraid? Right? This is this awe and reverence of God. Don't you dare get too comfortable with him. Don't you dare treat him with contempt. Don't you dare treat him as if it's an insignificant matter to come into his presence. That awe came over them. Living with this sense of, oh. They were filled with awe. And these many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Please note, it, wasn't, it doesn't say that the apostles did all these miracles because they somehow were endowed with this special apostolic power. It was the Spirit who did it through them as the Spirit chose at the unction of God. They had this wholehearted, single-minded devotion to God and His kingdom. This awe came over them, and the Spirit of God moved in signs and wonders through their hands, not because of anything they were, but because of who He is. And it resulted, there was this fear and this awesome sense of God's presence among them. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. They were a teaching church and a learning church. They were a fellowshipping church. They were a worshiping church. And they were a generous church. There, has been, there have been some in the past who try to use this passage to support communism, which is just the stupidest thing that someone could do. This is not early communism, because in communism, you don't own anything. And what you have is given to everyone. That's not what's going on here. 
This was completely voluntary. This isn't communism. Rather, this is commonism. We hold all things in common. We've had such an awe-inspiring experience of God and His holiness and His magnitude and His majesty. We're in such awe of Him. Suddenly, the hold that I have on stuff in this world is very, very, very loose now. Because I have this single-minded devotion to God and His kingdom, not to the things of this world. And so this was a voluntary choice where I have things that God has given me, and it's my own personal property. And the Holy Spirit has laid it on my heart to leverage that for the sake of you. It's my choice. And I'm moving in the Spirit of God to meet your needs. Communism would take it and distribute it. This is Spirit-led, where I choose to give it. And it's not given to the community at large. It's given to you and you and you who are part of the fellowship. It's so interesting. A few weeks back, I had a conversation with someone right before the first service. And and I'm up here and I'm preaching. And the Holy Spirit just said, why don't you mention something? And I made mention of this, of someone in our church who just had car trouble and needed a car. And I didn't, I wasn't planning on saying it. Just I just felt like, I think I'll say this. And right after that service, someone texted me and said, we have a car that has a completely rebuilt new engine in it. It runs great. Great. We want to just give it to that family. It wasn't done out of coercion. There wasn't even a request, really. It was just God, through the Holy Spirit, put it on that disciple. That disciple had such loose grip on their possessions that leveraged their possessions against someone's need within the fellowship. It's New Testament. It's beautiful. Imagine if God spoke to you personally and said, I want you to come away from your life right now and do something special for me. What what if he showed up to you and said, come follow me. I got something neat that I'm doing. I wonder how many of us would not be able to respond because we've leveraged our resources against us in consumer debt. There are so many people that I would love to be, I hear it all the time, I would love to be more generous. It's just, I've got myself into some things that I wish I could be more generous. Well, here's the problem. Like, disciples have leveraged and orchestrated our lives so much like the culture that we can't say yes to Jesus when he calls us to say yes. And until we have this authentic, awe-inspiring, deep experience of God where we devote our thing, our, ourselves to the kingdom. We're going to look just like the culture. And an edict from the governor will stop God's church. This is one of the reasons why I said when we were going to study Acts, I don't know if we're ready. Their devotion to God and his kingdom just looks so radically different oftentimes, huh? And this isn't pointing the finger thing. I mean, this is about me. Just looks so radically different sometimes. The, the, the interest, again, this whole generosity thing, they shared with anyone who had need within their fellowship. It's not that they shared everything that they had with everybody outside of their church. They didn't meet the needs of the entire community around them. They met the needs of their fellowship within them. And this is what we've got to understand about the church. Most have erroneously thought that the church exists to meet the needs of everybody in the society and culture around it. It doesn't. We're not called to. We are called to meet the needs of those within the church. We have to understand this. The church is responsible for those who are part of it. It is not responsible for those who are not. Here, here, let me just say it like this. This might help you understand. To those outside the church fellowship, we are responsible to witness. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the ends of the earth. To those inside the church fellowship, we are required to be generous. Here's why. Let's think theologically. What is God's priority? 
Is God's priority to meet all the physical needs of everybody around the, 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 the everybody in the culture as they might have need? Is that his, is that his priority? Not at all. His priority is to draw people to him. That's his priority. God is not willing that any should perish, but all should have eternal life. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that those who believe in him would have eternal life, not have all their needs met. So if his number one priority is to draw all people, to draw the culture that is far from him to him, one of the ways God does that is by leveraging his disciples within his church who are making sure that we are all taken care of so that he can leverage the problems outside the church so they look inside the church and say, if that's what it is to be a Christ follower, if their lives are so rearranged and so dramatically different, where they take care of each other like that, I need in that. If that's a reflection of God's love for his people, I want some of that. And it draws people in. So our responsibility to each other within the church is to take care of each other's needs. It's not to meet all the needs of those outside the church. We're required to witness and to invite them in. But this is what I'm saying. This is how powerful this issue of fellowship and koinonia is. Honestly, it's evangelistic in nature. I gotta wrap this up. I thought I was going to do better with only like five or six verses. I thought it. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and sincere hearts. So grateful. Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. They didn't neglect meeting together. They did it in corporate worship at the temple, and they did it in each other's homes. They were doing life together in private and in public. And God added daily those who are being saved, those outside coming inside, because those inside were devoted to the kingdom of God outside. I mean, this is how God does it. See, it's as the disciples lived their lives, they shared Jesus with their huddle. Their lives were so transformed. Their priorities were different. Their agendas were different. Their goals were different. Their conversations were different. Their finances, like everything was different. Someone might be able to argue with your theology. Someone might be able to argue with your reasons, but nobody can argue with your life change. And their lives were so changed by their single-minded devotion to God and the kingdom of God. No one could argue with it. And when those who were outside that fellowship saw that type of life change, they had to get in. And God added to their number daily those who were being saved, not just served, but saved. Here's how this works. Good deeds for the fellowship created goodwill in the community and allowed them to share the good news with the community because how they lived differently within themselves and outside allowed them to share the good news of Christ. And it was unstoppable. They are why we're sitting here today unstoppable. And so the thing I have to ask is what made them so devoted to the kingdom? The answer is they experienced the devotion of God towards them. So my question is this, do you understand how devoted God is to you? I mean, do you really get the depth of his devotion to you? That while you were still sinners separated from him, he died for you with no guarantee that you would come to him. Do you understand the depth and power of his devotion to you?
For God loved you so much that he sent his son to die that whoever would believe in him would have eternal. Do you understand the depth and power of his devotion to you? And if you say you do, the next question is, will you commit to complete devotion to him? A single-minded loyalty. Will you this day commit to a complete devoted life to the kingdom? A single-minded loyalty. Where God has a lot of fans, but I think very few Acts 2 fanatics. A single-minded loyalty and devotion to God and his kingdom. That is unstoppable. I want you to pray with me. If you've never really come to terms with the depth of God's devotion to you, I want to invite you into that right now. I want to invite you to understand his intense devotion to you so much so that he would send his son to die on the cross so sin can be forgiven and you gain new life. If you've never availed yourself to his provision through Jesus, now is your day. And I want to invite you in this moment to say, God, Thank you that you have been so devoted to me. You gave your son to die in on the cross so I can receive forgiveness. I accept that gift. And I'm committing myself as best I know how to a single-minded devotion to you and your kingdom. For those of you here who have been a fan, but a fanatic would not be the word that would be used to describe your relationship with Christ nor your fleshed out faith, I'd invite you in this moment. The Bible calls it repentance for your lack of devotion, for my lack of devotion. And just to come clean before Him and say, God, I'm sorry. I believe in you, I trust you, but a single-minded devotion? No. I've been double-minded about a lot of things. And I confess that before you. Forgive me. And I commit to being devoted, single-mindedly devoted to you and your kingdom. I repent of my double-mindedness. I repent of my nominality. I repent of my lethargy. And I choose this day devotion to you and your kingdom, a single-minded commitment. I choose this day a single-minded devoted commitment and loyalty to your kingdom and your word, to your way. I choose this day. I'm fully yours. Help me that my life would look different. That would be different. I give myself to you. Father, I pray that you would draw near to our hearts that are drawn near to you. That you would make us and, and make your church in this context unstoppable. That neither the government nor the gates of hell would succeed against the move of your spirit in this place. Father, 
for those who are coming to you, for those who are giving ourselves to you in commitment for single-minded devotion to you and your kingdom, Father. Empower us. Holy Spirit, come upon us that we would live out kingdom priorities both in the context of this fellowship and in the context of our culture, that those in our huddle that don't know you would see such a change in us that they would be amazed at you and drawn to you. That's your will, God, and I pray that over us. In the matchless, mighty name of Jesus, amen. For those of you who just joined the fellowship, welcome. For those of you who just decided a wholehearted, single-minded devotion, welcome. We're going to get after it together. I need to ask you to do a couple things. If you made one of those decisions, either electronically or on those little cards in front of you, I want you to fill that out. Here's why. Because you got to tell somebody. That's what disciples do. But also because I pray over many of you by name every day. And for those of you who are saying, I have chosen a single-minded devotion to Christ because I understand his devotion to me. I want to add you by name to that. Sometimes it's better to meet with someone after you've made a decision and tell them that and, and, and pray together for that. And if that's you too, I would encourage you in the name of Christ not to leave out of here when service is done, but to come and talk to John Bott right down there, Sean right there, the Addington's right there, the McElroy's right there, and just do a little bit of prayer with them, commitment with them. I love you, and it's fun to go through the Bible together, right? Next week, chapter 3. Read chapter through, 2 through new lenses and chapter 3 and ask for the Holy Spirit to start speaking to you about his word. If you don't know Jesus yet and you're still not convinced, I want to invite you back. Just keep, keep coming and listening and seeking because I'm confident that when you seek, you'll find. Let's sing together. Yeah.